Okay, if you're on your feet, remain standing. If you're not and you're able to, stand up with us. Good to see you this morning. I want to welcome our online congregation. Good to have you with us as well. As we prepare to receive the word of the Lord this morning, let's declare our faith together. Say it with me. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And now we open our hearts to you one more time this morning. We need you, O oh God. We need you. We say with the psalmist, Whom have we in heaven but you? And earth has nothing that we desire, nothing that we desire besides you. Our flesh and our heart may fail us. In fact, our flesh and our heart will fail us. It's all fallen apart. But God is the strength of our hearts and our portion forever. You're our portion. You're our inheritance. Jesus, you said that your spirit was the water of life. You said that your bread, your body, your being is the bread of life for us. You're our inheritance now and always. That's our confession this morning. So we pray, find us. Find us. We're coming in this morning and our hearts are a thousand different places. Some of us are riding high. Some of us feel like the world has fallen to pieces. We're just very distracted. So we pray, Lord Jesus, that you, the one who gathers up all things and puts them under your feet, that you would gather up the scattered pieces of our being this morning and put us right back where we belong, right in your presence. Focused, centered, full of trust, ready to worship. Grant it, we pray. May the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said. I'm in Revelation 19. You can be seated, starting in verse 11. Text of Scripture to put faith in your heart this morning. John says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. And his rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges, and he wages war. And his eyes... John says, are like a blazing fire. We have seen this figure before. Who is this? Oh, very good, class. 
His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the, say loud, the Word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will uh, rule them with an iron scepter. And he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out, in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses, and the riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the horse and his army, the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who had performed his signs on its behalf. And with these signs, he deluded those who received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Once again, family-friendly, New Life East. we got to love it. And the rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves <laughs> on their flesh. Uh, brothers and sisters, this is the, <laughs> the word of the Lord. And all God's people said... Oh, I love the Bible. It's just a wonderful thing. Uh, here is this epic battle. The battle lines are drawn here. And John has already alluded to the fact that this uh, battle is coming. If you have Bibles, look back at chapter 17, the chapter that talked about the woman that was sitting on the beast. You remember this? It wasn't that long ago. The wo woman represents unjust economic systems, and the beast represents unjust political power, worldly kingdoms that have become demonic because of their misuse of authority. You were there for that. I was there too. Was, I like that message. That was a good one. <laughs> and in verse 12 of chapter 17, John explains that the ten horns that you saw on this beast are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. But for one hour they will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose. They will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb. But what happens? Yeah, you got to do better than that. What happens? The lamb's going to triumph because he's the Lord of the Lords. He's the Lord of the Lords and the King of Kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. So in 17, he doesn't give us a lot of detail on this battle. He just kind of goes, you know, this is going to happen. They're going to wage war and the lamb is going to triumph. So, so now we get to 19. And what John is doing, I want to suggest to you, is he's not moving on from 17, but he's taking that little moment from 17 and now he's blowing it up. Like, and now for the rest of the story, you know, like he's getting us into that to show you what really happened there. And so we get a longer account of what was going on in 17 here in chapter 19. And in 19, we see the rider on the white horse. He's called Faithful and True. He judges and wages war. And he's got the armies of heaven following him, riding on white horses. And out of his mouth is a sharp sword and king of kings and lord of lords, right? So... It's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus the Lord, with all of the host of heaven with him. And then in verse 19, we see the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. So, on the left, right? The King of kings and Lord of lords, the word of God, Jesus the Lord, with all of the armies of heaven with him. And then on the other side, we have the beast 
and all of the hordes of hell with him. And the epic battle is about to begin. And you may have noticed that there's something very odd about chapter 19. If you noticed it, can you say it loud? You get an extra special prize if you noticed it. There's no battle. <laughs> the whole thing is lined up and everything is about to happen. What you would expect is that there would be this long description of a tussle between the rider and the horse and the armies and the hordes of hell and all of that. And instead, the very moment that it's all gathered together, what we get from John in verse 20 is he says, well, you know what happened was the beast was captured and the false prophet and they were thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. What? <laughs> Guys, there's no battle in Revelation chapter 19. The battle that is supposed to define human history, the greatest battle that human beings ever have seen or will see takes place in chapter 19. And yet when we get to the actual battle, there is no, there's no battle. What does that say to us about our God? What does that say to us about the world that we live in? I want to show you a picture up on the screen here. You probably recognize it. What is this? It's a yin yang, ancient Chinese symbol. Uh, this represents what in philosophy you would call a cosmology, a way of seeing the world, right? And so what this represents is good and evil locked in a kind of eternal struggle with each other. Then we think about the world, we think about human history, we think about the cosmos. There is not a transcendent good that locks everything together, but instead all you have is countervailing forces in human history. Good and evil grappling with each other, tussling with each other more or less forever. And this isn't, I mean, it is an ancient philosophy, but it's also very contemporary, isn't it? That a lot of people, the way that they think about human history, this is just the way that they think about it. Perhaps the greatest uh, modern depiction of this philosophy is the epic cinematic series Star Wars. Do we have any Star Wars fans in the house this morning? Come on. Star Wars is dualism. Star Wars is good and evil battling together. Star Wars is the force. And is the force good? Is the force bad? Well, you know, and there's the light side of the force and the dark side of the force. And some people are on the light side and some people are the, on the dark side. And, you know, you got to make sure that you're on the light side and not on the dark side because that's where all the... But, you know, the reason that they keep making all these Star Wars movies... Is because in this philosophy, this way of looking at the world, there can never be an end, can there? Good and evil, going around in circles, forever and ever and ever and ever. And even in Christianity, I think that this philosophy, this way of looking at the world, this yin and yang way of looking at the world, actually, I think it works its way into the water supply of Christianity. I've grown up in the church and uh, that has many positive things and many not so positive things about it. And one of those things was, uh, I remember when I was a kid, the uh, novels of Frank Peretti were really popular. Do you remember these? This Present Darkness, Piercing the Darkness. Yeah. Were you there for that? Yeah, I was there for that. I was in eighth grade and I saw people reading these books. My parents read these books. I grabbed one of them one night. This was not very smart. And uh, probably 8 or 9 p.m., I started reading Piercing the Darkness, This Present Darkness, which if you don't know, is about this 
little town, I think of the rumor has it that it was like molded, um, uh, molded on Boulder, Colorado, or somewhere, Manitou Springs or something. Yeah, anyway, be that as it may. Yeah. Demonic forces, you know, are battling for this little town. And so I started reading it at 8 or 9 p.m. and I didn't stop probably until about 5 a.m. when I was finished. So I didn't sleep through that night. And I didn't sleep again until I was 27 after that. <laughs> Dualism, right? Ah, is there something about that that resonates with us? We want that to be the way that things are because maybe, we, maybe when we look around at the world, that's just what it seems to us to be. That everything just is kind of this epic push and pull, this tug of war. And then we come to the scriptures and what we realize is that the scriptures philosophy is anything but dualistic. The way that the scriptures look at the world is not yin and yang. It's not good and evil locked in an eternal tussle with each other. Look at the psalmist here, Psalm 97. And we could drop in almost anywhere, like at random in the scriptures to see this. But here's a good example. The psalmist says, let the Lord reign. So the Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. The clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles the mountains, what do they do? They melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. The people see his glory and all who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols worship him, all you gods. There isn't an epic struggle, is there, here? The psalmist is not going, you know, one day God's really going to get those bad guys and then he's going to reign. What does he say? The Lord, when? Now, over all things, the Lord reigns. And so when he wants to, he just rises up. And what do the hills do? They melt like wax in the presence of the Lord. Does wax stand a chance in the presence of fire? No, it just melts away. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles and the one enthroned in heaven talks to his heavenly council and he devises a strategic plan to try to conquer all of those. No, what does he do? He just laughs. What are you all doing down there? What's that? You're trying to usurp my authority? Nice. That's cute. You can do your little thing. And when I'm ready, I'm going to put the house back in order. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. I love the old translation. It says the Lord holds them in derision. You fools. What do you think? That you're going to get the upper hand on me? Come on. Then he rebukes them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Verse 6. I said it already. It's the second service. I always, I get one moment like this with you where I just have to explain this. the second service. I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. My reign is unchallenged. It's established. It doesn't matter what happens down there. I'm not panicked by it. Here's Isaiah chapter 40. Listen to the prophet. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and it's... <laughs> It's people are like, what? 
They're like grasshoppers. Come on. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and he spreads them out like a tent to live in. And he brings the princes to naught and he reduces the world, uh, the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than what? He blows on them and they wither and the whirlwind sweeps them away like a chaff. Brothers and sisters, this is everywhere in the scriptural record. And so what John is doing in Revelation chapter 19 is he's not pivoting away from the rest of scripture and adding something to what we didn't already know about God. What he's doing is he's tapping deep into this intuition about who God is, and he's putting it on huge display. You ask the question, why is there no battle in Revelation 19? There's no battle in Revelation 19 because all power finally belongs to God. And when he demands it back, it is literally, it's no contest. It's one of the things that we say in Christianity that God is all-powerful. But you have to realize that when we say that, what we're not saying is that there's a certain amount of power to be fought for. And God's going to try to you know, gotta get it back from us who have stolen it away. But God is greater than us. He's wholly other than us. So God's power is literally transcendent, our power. It's the ground of all power. God is not competing with us for a certain amount of power. So it's not that it's no contest just because God happens to be the meanest guy on the block. It's no contest because God is God and we are dust and ashes. And that's good news. Can I get an amen from somebody this morning? There's no battle in Revelation 19 because there never could be a battle. It's no contest. Don't you get it? This is the way that it is in our world. And when stuff goes haywire and when it gets crazy on our little planet, our pale blue dot that we live on, God is not thrown off course by any of that, you know? What? The election wasn't decided on Tuesday night? Jesus, what are we going to do? I don't know, Father. We're going to find the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, where are you? You're going to hold a council? Sort of figure it out. Uh, uh, okay, here, new plan. That has never happened, okay, in the heavenlies. <laughs> it's never happened. God plans for every contingency. He knows everything that's going to happen. He has all power in heaven and on earth. It's been given to him. there's, there's, There's no contest. And there couldn't be a contest. And when stuff starts going crazy in our world, the assurance that we have is that God knows what's going on. And he's got it all perfectly under control. There's no need to fret. And there's no need to panic. And there's no need to run around like a chicken with your head cut off. There's just no need for that. Why? Because we know that he's carrying it all. That song that we sang earlier today. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because I know he holds what? He holds the future. And life is worth the living. Why? Just because he lives. That's a Christian confession. That's a Christian way of looking at the world. There's no battle in Revelation 19 because there never could be a battle. It was all no contest from the first, but I want to say that there's a deeper reason why there's no battle in Revelation 19. There's a deeper reason why there's no battle in Revelation 19. And for this, let me appeal to the great uh, board game Risk. Do we have any Risk fans in the house this morning? So I taught, we've been playing Risk in my family for years. If you don't know what Risk is, Risk is uh, the epic game of world domination. That's why you teach your teenage boys this, you know, 
great parenting, Andrew. It is, it's a great game, you know, and all the countries, it's fun. And all the countries, you know, are all set out there and you get your, uh, you get your armies and you set up your armies and you try to develop a strategy like how are you going to conquer the world, you know, and that's what you do. So then you build up your uh, armed forces over time and then you start kind of watching the ebb and flow. There are little skirmishes that happen here and there. But eventually you have like just enough got pieces, just enough guys that you decide like this is the moment to make the move. And every game of Risk, which usually lasts like five hours long, has this moment when all of a sudden it sort of rises to this dramatic crescendo, battle of good versus evil. And the outcome of that battle usually determines where the game is going to go. And if you played Risk, you know this, that the great battle will happen. And then once it happens, everything else that happens after that even though the game continues to go on, really what it is is cleanup duty. Because the battle has already been waged. And we have this funny thing that we do in Christianity, many modern Christians, where what we do is we fix the epic battle of good and evil, if there is such a battle of good and evil. We fix it sometime where? In the future. Right? We have Christians all the time running around like chickens with their heads cut off because they think that we're on the throes of Armageddon. Oh! And I'm sure that there are great battles to come. I'm positive that there are great battles to come. But the New Testament's perspective on the great battle is very different than our perspective of when the great battle is going to be fought. Look at Paul's words in Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Paul writes, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And then watch this. Having, I want you to say it with me. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. So if there is an epic battle to speak of, When did it happen? AD 33, on a hill outside of Jerusalem. So it's theologically illegitimate to run around in the church or in our culture fear-mongering. Oh, you know, if these people get the upper hand, you know what's going to happen now. No, 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 no. Stop. Stop. On a hill outside of Jerusalem, sin, death, and the grave exhausted themselves in the body of the Lord. To put it in terms of the analogy that I used just a little bit ago, the battle was waged. It's all just cleanup duty now. Yeah, I need more from you than that. It's cleanup duty now. Hebrews chapter (laughs) 2. Paul writes, Since the children have flesh and blood... He too, that is Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives are held in slavery by their fear of death. Once again, for the writer of Hebrews, uh, when did the great battle happen? Over here. Guys, it's done. It's done. Sin, death, and the grave exhausted themselves in the body of the Lord. And that God, Jesus is the incarnation of our God, our God in flesh, 
The God who sits above the circle of the earth, like Isaiah said. The God for whom it was always no contest. He, this is how no contest it actually is for our God. That he didn't have to fight on the cross. They killed him. And in hell, he laughed. <laughs> we say that he descended to the dead. He goes, oh, you're going to bury me like all the way down, like as far down as it gets. The God of Psalm 2, who scoffs, who holds the powers in derision from the very depths of the grave, Jesus Christ, he laughed and he came back from the dead. The writer of Revelation says, holding the keys of death and hell. So now I ask you, why is there no battle in Revelation 19? Because it's over. Because it's over. It's all done. <laughs> it's all done. And that mental shift, when you get that, that'll do something good to you. It'll give you confidence. It'll give you freedom. It'll give you faith that it doesn't matter what circumstance happens. Doesn't matter what empires rise, doesn't matter what empires fall. Doesn't matter when an election goes this way or an election goes that way. Doesn't matter when a global pandemic comes or a global pandemic goes. Doesn't matter if the stock market is great or the stock market is crummy. Doesn't matter if you're healthy in body or sick in body. Doesn't matter if your marriage is working right or your marriage is not working right. Doesn't matter if your kings or your kids are serving God. Doesn't matter if your kids are not serving God. The battle is it's over. It's done, guys. So when Jesus from the cross cries, it is finished, he answers that cry in Revelation by saying it is done. Everything else that happens in our history is an outworking of that one great victory that happened on the cross of Christ. And you got to let that get down deep in your, con in your conscience because it will fill you with confidence. I think about Winston Churchill, one of the most fascinating, I think, leaders of the modern era. And when you read the history books about Winston Churchill, Winston by no stretch of the imagination was a believer. But Winston was raised in the soil of Christian Europe. And you know what they say about Winston? They say about Winston that he was buoyant through World War II. Like almost giddy at times. Through some of the darkest times of World War II. In fact, when the Blitzkrieg was on, they were dropping bombs in London. And all of Winston's guys were going, Winston, you need to get down in the bunker. Winston, it's like bad out there. Winston, lock the door and cover yourself up. Do you know what Winston would do? He was standing on top of the buildings in London watching it happen, planning his next move. And they go, Winston, you can't do that, man. You're like, right now, you're like the leader of the free world. Get in the bunker over here at the very least, Winston. Wear a helmet. But there's something in that for us, guys. That's how we ought to be. That because we know that everything has been taken care of and because everything is done and because we know that the decisive battle was waged and won on the cross of Christ, we ought to have a swagger about us. And by the way, this message was planned weeks ago. So I'm not talking about, you know, well, you know, the Democrats got it so we can have some swagger. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about our life lived under the sun in which all things are not as they should be. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. If Trump had won it, 
we've got swagger. If Biden wins it, we got swagger. If somebody else wins it, we got swagger, baby. <laughs> Why? Because we live from somewhere else. <laughs> Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And we're unfazed by the things of this world. Guys, I think about, <laughs> give God praise for that. <laughs> Jesus is Lord for crying out loud. The rest is just details. We probably should just go to communion with that. Come on, let's stand up this morning. Oh, Lord, we worship you. And now we bring before you, oh, our God, all of the places in which we do not love and do not trust you. And we're not going to hide those things from you. We're asking that you'd pour your spirit upon us this morning and make us new. And so we make this our prayer of confession before you as we prepare our hearts for the table. We say, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, the scripture says that because we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith in this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. If that is true of you this morning, give God praise. Amen and amen and amen. Let's sing this song of worship. And in just a minute here, Pastor Colin's going to lead us to the table.
his name to thank him for what he has done. up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. People of God, would you give him praise this morning? Thank you, Jesus. You are so great. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this when you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you drink this cup and eat this bread, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim the mystery of our faith this morning. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And Jesus, this morning, we give you thanks and praise, Lord that the battle is over. God, that you've already won, and Lord, we can live in joy. God, and I, I, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning, Lord, that we would look to you first. Lord, that we would find our satisfaction, Lord, find our stability in you first. And God, I thank you that you came to die on a cross for our sins, Lord. And this is the proof that we hold in our hands, Lord, the proof, Lord, that, that you gave everything for us. And God, we are so thankful. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Let's receive the bread together. Thank you, Jesus. We can receive the cup together. Let's respond out of thankfulness as we sing the doxology together. 
Can we just now rest in this moment? Drink in God's presence. Know his grace, know his goodness, know his kindness. Believe his victory. Receive his victory. Feel the ground becoming firm underneath your feet again. Feel your unsteady heart becoming steady again. Sense your distracted mind becoming centered again. On the God who loves you on the spirit who fills you, on Jesus who gave his life for you. And now as you go from this place, I pray over you. Paul's benediction actually to the Romans, I'll pray over you. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, okay? As you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Go out of this place today overflowing with hope. All right? No fear-mongering. Hope-mongering. That's what you're going to do. Hope-mongering. If, you, if you're new, stop at Connect Central. we got a gift for you, like Pastor Colin said. Um, if you need prayer for anything, I'll call our altar ministry team forward. We'd love to pray with you or anything that you're going through. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you. You're loved. We'll see you next week.